Hi, everybody. Welcome to OOMF, uh, the official podcast of the WVU Injury Control Research Center. OOMF is an informal discussion with injury control researchers to help our listeners think about a topic in a, in a new way. Uh, my name is Kara Stokes, and I will be your host <laughs> throughout this lovely podcast. Um, and today, we're gonna, our episode focuses on the academic journey of WVU ICRC's director, Dr. Rob Bossert, or for you really fancy folk out there, it's Rob Bossarte. Um, Bossarte, please. Bossarte. Yes. You prefer Bossarte? I do, yes. Got it. Okay. Today. <laughs> today. Before we get started, we have two lovely co-hosts, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Dan Shook. I'm the director of Mountain Safe Outreach Program of the Injury Control Research Center. My name is Sarah Warfield. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in epidemiology. Awesome. Great. Um, so our, our, our guest of, what do we call it, dishonor? Guest of honor? Yeah. Seat of discomfort. Seat of discomfort. <laughs> I yeah. don't remember what we're referring to it as. All right, so our guest of honor here is Dr. Rob Basarte, and um, I've been informed that I have to give a fun fact about him before we get started. And the fun fact that I have um, to share is Dr. Rob Bossert, who very atypically um, has a bunch of tattoos on his arms and rides a motorcycle, and I think that's quite rare for academics, no? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just <laughs> so. me, yeah. <laughs> That's the fun fact I've got for you guys. Um, all right, so our first question, um, well, actually, I'm going to scratch that question that was written down for me because I don't like it. Well, so, I, I would just like to say something yeah. first. I'm so happy to be here and so happy to know that I've been on an academic journey. You have. Which yeah. sounds like a, a learning experience and that I may have grown. It's good to know. I'm not exactly sure it's happened. So I look forward to learning about myself as part of this <laughs> You'll this discover podcast. yourself yes. throughout this podcast. You'll figure out that I've grown. Yeah, so we're going to fast forward all throughout your actual formal education and start at EIS. Um, where Which I would count part as, as part of my formal education. I suppose, but oh. it's it's considered a fellowship. It is, right? a, a postdoctoral post training fellowship. All right, why don't you tell us a little more about that, if you wouldn't mind. Which part? The whole all thing? of it. Uh, yeah, all right. So maybe I can end with what I did my graduate studies in. Perfect. So I, I did my graduate studies in, in sociology at the University of Notre Dame where I was entirely focused on quantitative methodology. So all I did was take statistics courses and whatever department would let me show up. And so when I uh, finished with my PhD, I thought I was going to go be a sociology professor somewhere, but I had a mentor, I'll give her a shout out in case she's listening, which she's not, but she could, I'll send this to her, Felicia LeClaire, <laughs> who suggested I apply to the EIS program. I had never heard of it. It's the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC. I said, why in the world would I want to go do that? I'm going to go be a sociology professor. And she said, because you're public health, you just don't know it. You need to apply. So I grudgingly applied, had no intention of going and accepting it, and was selected to go down for an interview. And she told me, you have to go down for the interview. So I went down for the interview. <laughs> and they walked you around and asked you a bunch of weird questions like, what's the last book you read? Which I What was it? I have no idea. I can't remember now. What year was it? Um, 2004. So if you go through your catalog of the New York Times 100 bestsellers, they mentioned one of those. Yeah, it probably wasn't one of those. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, Harry Potter? I was thinking it would be Harry Potter. Harry Potter, but... something like Spot Goes to the Park. Probably a light <laughs> rate. Whatever acuity <laughs> level we're at. Right. <laughs> uh, went down there for the interview and then started interviewing for academic jobs and tried to take uh, my family to Edmonton, Alberta to be faculty at the University of Alberta. And my wife said, uh, we hope you enjoy that. Your kids and I will see you in the summer. <laughs> so that took that one off the table. Yeah. I was really excited about that one. Uh, 
And then I was going to go to Clemson. Sorry, Alberta. Yeah, <laughs> a lovely place. Yeah. Uh, West Edmonton Mall, fantastic. Shout out to Alberta. A beautiful university. Um, you have to plug in your car to keep your engine block from freezing <laughs> while you're in, in the so office. So diesel's wow. out of the question. Diesel's out of the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, I think it's Celsius. I never did the conversion right, but it was 40 below when I arrived. Oh, Celsius or Celsius, yeah. So it was bitterly, bitterly I cold. Don't yeah. blame Tara. No. <laughs> then again, she's in Rochester, so yeah. it's also cold. Maybe a deep freeze. It was cold, whatever it was. <laughs> um, so I was uh, offered an opportunity to join EIS, and I passed over a couple of faculty jobs and decided to go to EIS. And it's a two-year postdoctoral training program in epidemiology. There were there were eighty one of us in my cohort. Eighteen of us were PhDs. The rest were. MDs or veterinarians, or there was one JD, MD. Wow. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, I immediately recognized I was underqualified, and everybody there was was more successful than I had been up until that point. It was one of the more embarrassing days of my life, the first day of EIS, and they go down, and they, they have every, you're in a row, and you're alphabetical, and everybody has to say what you've been doing before EIS, and the gentleman to my right had spent the past five years working at a... Um, pediatric HIV clinic in South America, uh, one of these Doctors Without Borders type initiatives. And the guy to my left was the JDMD, and he had done his residency in, in cardiovascular medicine and just come from Washington, D.C., where he'd done a two-year internship on Capitol Hill. Wow. I know, right? And then I said, <laughs> so I went to a bunch of Notre Dame football games, and <laughs> <laughs> I went to the linebacker, and I didn't do any of the stuff that you guys have done. I would say arguably, though, it's supposed to be an extension of formal education, right? It is. You had a, more to learn, maybe. No? I don't know. I don't know. I, I actually think training in, in quantitative methodology put me in a very good position to be successful. And coming out of a PhD program where I've been trained to write and do hypothesis-driven research and formulate a research question really gave me a jump start in it. And I ended up being assigned to the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, and you've got these cores of uh, core activities of learning. I think there are 12 of them you have to satisfy to graduate. And so one of them is write a manuscript and go on an outbreak investigation, a bunch of things. So I spent the next couple of years doing that, working with the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. As an epidemiologist myself, and I'm sure Sarah, you can weigh in on this, but I don't know. It's like the elite of, I don't know. Yeah, I would say we, we all aspire look up to, to that. Yeah. yeah. When, you, when you start as an epi student, you learn about EIS, and everyone's like, oh, I want to do that one day. Yeah, I didn't feel that way. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. No, I went grudgingly, and uh, Tara, my wife, for all of our listeners in Sweden. Um, <laughs> and one in Russia. Yeah, and one in Russia. <laughs> would tell you that I was a miserable bastard for about a month when you're doing in-classroom training because I'd come home every day and say, I didn't spend the past uh, eight years in graduate school to spend two more years in training. I wanted nothing to do with it. But it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. Absolutely. That's really cool. And now how did that experience mold you into where you are today? I mean, there's a lot of time in between, but... <laughs> a couple years. Yeah. Um, a few tattoos in between here and there. Um, that's how I measure time. Uh, it, in a lot of ways, actually. It, it, it was my formal introduction to public health. It was my formal introduction to epidemiology. I arrived at my postdoc without a substantive content area. I was a methodologist, almost purely a methodologist. My dissertation was methodological. And I had uh, really concentrated on nothing but that for four years. So I really didn't have an area where I was applying those skills. And when I arrived at the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control and sat down with my 
our primary supervisor, Tom Simon, shout out to Tom Simon, and Monica Swan, I mean, they were absolutely wonderful. I, I couldn't have been more fortunate than I was to have those, those supervisors. Uh, Tom sat down with me and said, so what do you want to work on while you're here? And I thought, oh, I mean, I, I'm good with data. And he said, well, really don't have many people doing work in suicide, and would you consider maybe doing some work for us in, in the area of suicide prevention? And it seemed like a natural fit. It's It's got its roots in sociology, Durkheim and, and, and suicide, and it's something that impacts more people than I understood at the time, and it's it's conceptually complex, it's methodologically complex, and so I, I was I, I tended to be drawn to those things at a high degree of complexity, and so it was just a natural fit, and I just started working on that while I was there, and a bunch of other things, and it sort of took me on the path of my career. But it, it, it you know, the content area was only one way it, it helped me, the, you know, Tom was a wonderful mentor and, and helped, uh, as a postdoc should, uh, guide me into a professional career and help with professionalization. The EIS program gave us a bunch of training in how to interact with the media and be a representative of CDC and how to speak for an organization. So there was a little bit of political sensitivity you had to learn and some leadership skills you had to acquire pretty rapidly. And just because of what the program is, you would find yourself being deployed on outbreak investigations and end up having to be sometimes the sole representative for, for CDC's efforts there. And that was sort of a crash course in, in diplomacy, in my case. Sometimes Takes a good bit of trust, right? For them to put the trust in you to represent Yeah, I, Yeah, I think so. Well, they, they, bet they support you, which is mm -hmm. good. They train you. But it's also, I think, what makes uh, it such a prestigious program is that uh, they're, they're pretty selective about who they bring in and consider those qualities of, of the people that they accept into it. I wasn't absolutely sure they hit the nail on the head when they offered me the spot, but <laughs> but it was a good experience for me. And where'd you get deployed to? This is the question mm -hmm. for all the EPI students out there who may be listening. So there's the who and the what. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Doug Hamilton was director of EIS at the time, and if, if I could get Doug on the program, he'd probably tell you I called him about every other week saying, is there an investigation I can go on? Because I just wanted to go places. So. I did a couple of domestic deployments. I think my first was actually going to Indiana and Illinois chasing down people who had been infected with monkeypox. Um, so there had been a monkeypox outbreak in the Midwest, and I was sent with uh, three other EIS officers, and they, we paired off, and they gave us rental cars. We showed up in the airport, and we had a list of addresses of people that had been infected, and we were supposed to drive around Illinois and Indiana, find them, draw their blood, and ship it back to CDC so they could test the antibody response because it hadn't been in this country before. So, sorry to interrupt, but uh, you said talking about drawing blood. You were previously a... Paramedic. Paramedic. That had to have helped you. No. No. No, I was terrible at it. No, I mean, I, <laughs> no. Guess, I guess when I was a paramedic, I was okay, but it had been five years since I touched a person in okay. any way clinically. So the first thing that happens is they ship me out to Illinois, tell me to go draw blood. The first person I have to draw blood on is a 15-year-old hemophiliac. Oh, my yeah. No pressure. Yeah, no yeah, pressure. Yeah, right? And in case you're wondering, I screwed <clears throat> it up. Yeah, I, I blew his vein. Fortunately, he'd had his factor infusion like a few days earlier, and he was fine. But no pressure there whatsoever. But it was, it was fascinating. I got to meet the primary uh, vector for infection was prairie dogs. Hmm. Prairie dogs were allowed to be sold as exotic pets at the time, and they become infected. And... For some reason, people like to let their prairie dogs sleep with them. So almost everybody who was bit had been letting the prairie dogs sleep with them, and then they were bit, and they were infected with monkeypox. And interesting. Yeah. And then CDC, once they figured out the outbreak was happening, came and took all their prairie dogs, and they were still really angry about losing their prairie dogs. Uh, still are, I bet. Still are, probably. Yes. <laughs> so there was a monkeypox. Uh, there was. I came to West Virginia and walked around the woods with the Rainbow Family of Living Light 
for about two weeks. Um, that was a counterculture group. That was awesome. Uh, there were concerns about violence and substance use among the Rainbow family. And so West Virginia asked for what's called an FEA, Official Epidemiologic Assistance from CDC. And we came in to do surveillance. Turns out that the first code, the only code that the uh, Rainbow family asks you to adhere to is a code of nonviolence. So <laughs> violence wasn't much of an issue. Interesting. And they like to keep the hard drugs, alcohol, and hard drugs in Babylon, which is, you know, outside of their formal area. So we, we mostly just walked around the woods. It was, uh, it was fun. It was interesting. Gathered data every day. I learned a lot about providing care. When you say you gathered like data, what type of data? We did surveys. Okay. Yeah, it was the first time we did developed this little survey that we were going to ask them about drug use, and we learned some really sexual violence victimization. We learned that about twenty percent of the women who were uh, participants that we surveyed had been victims of sexual violence. There were a lot mm -hmm. of homeless people that followed that group, and a lot of people with, with some substance use disorders, although not as not as prevalent as you would think. Depression was a lot more prevalent. Um, about seventeen percent uh, screened positive for depression or reported depression. Mm -hmm. So we were able to do a primary data collection effort. It was the first time that. I'd been out in the field doing that sort of thing, and it was interesting. Did you like it? I did. Yeah. I did. I can imagine so. Yeah. Uh, I went with a, a friend, uh, uh, Ernie, and he was all military, went to West Point, was a uh, flight surgeon in the Army, and he grew a beard, and they started calling him Dr. Whoopi because he was handing out condoms to everybody. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that deployment actually caused friction with myself and my wife because I was carrying a backpack around and I had sunscreen and condoms and we would just hand stuff out to people. And I went on another deployment uh, to Nigeria a uh, short time later. And my wife, I was talking to her on the phone and she said to me on the, uh, on the phone, is there something you want to tell me? <laughs> and I said, no. What? And she said, well, I was using your, your book bag and I found some things in there. I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, why are you carrying condoms? <laughs> and it's because I'm in public health. I'm like, yeah. give it away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the unintended things that happen. Yeah, the unintended parts of the job. Yeah. So, uh, Rainbow Family Suicide Cluster Investigation in Maine, uh, study of uh, defective blood lead sensors and, and uh, bias and estimation of blood lead levels in, in children. Then started working with the polio eradication program and got shipped to Nigeria a couple times, Namibia, India, um, and then uh, somewhere in there, Hurricanes Katrina and Rita hit, and I went down to New Orleans for about six weeks. So there, I did all that. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah in two that's years. Yeah, really cool. And I think, I mean, not to focus too much on your experience with the IS, because I think we have a lot more to talk about in terms of suicide, but um, your experience with Katrina, I found mm -hmm. pretty interesting in your role and, and how they saw you. And, and when I say they, I mean the community. Who in the community? The the people who are impacted by oh yeah her. to be honest with you we didn't interact very much with them uh when i was i was one of the first teams into new orleans following hurricane katrina when we arrived it was still underwater i think we were there seven days after katrina uh, rolled through it was very much like a war scene it's sort of hard to describe to people just how chaotic new orleans was i will forever remember being met at the border with, of the bridge going over Lake Pontchartrain, and you had to have a military escort across our bridge, and so we're driving the big federal Ford expeditions, and the Army shows up to escort us over the bridge, and we're just flying over this bridge, because there are no cars, all the all people are gone. And you're realizing that New Orleans is completely underwater, and we drive, in the middle of the highway was a Deer Park water truck, and it was turned and sort of semi-jackknifed, 
and people had ripped the doors open on the side and there were water bottles that were just sort of broken in on the ground it was clearly a chaotic scene where people were pulling water out and trying to get water out of it and, and sort of get whatever supplies they could and you would see people's homes with the front door still open and like a couch dragged out of the house and all furniture and cars were parked on all the bridges as people were trying to get anything they could to high ground it was really fascinating um, and really got a sense of the devastation that, that happened in the chaos. I talked to one person from the military who said he'd been on evacuations um, in Rwanda and international uh, scenes where genocide is happening and civil war, and he said he had never seen people that desperate. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And you slept in the barracks, no? Uh, well, we slept all over the place. Yeah. So the first night we were there, the first couple nights, we slept in Tent City outside of Baton Rouge, freezing, by the way known fact those air conditioners will kill you in those things um and then we were stationed on uss iwo jima uh, for about two weeks and then hurricane rita came rolling through and so we had to evacuate and spend a couple days uh sleeping on the floor of a gym at a baptist church and then cdc rented us a house and we moved to the house for a couple days and then it was clear to go back and we went back and we moved into a hotel that was evacuated the first floor was underwater that was that was fun they Told you, we think the water works, but we are not sure it's safe. So if you, sh we don't recommend showering. If you do, don't let it get in your eyes or mouth. And that's always fun, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then slowly things started to improve and, and, and get better. I think we stayed in that hotel for most of the rest of the stay. We went back to the uh, the ship once, and then it had to pull out and, and go on some operations someplace else. Met President Bush there. He showed up a couple times. That's my sort of fun story of being there. I'm on the ship and waiting to depart to go do my work in the morning. There were long days. We leave every morning at around seven o'clock, go to every functioning health uh, provider site in the city, collect information on every patient, then go back to the ship at night, enter it all into a database, generate the statistics, send it back to Atlanta in the morning so they could look for disease outbreak. But I'm standing there waiting to get off the ship and there's some guy standing in front of me. And there are several hundred, it felt like, um, soldiers in the, in the mess area. And I thought, why are all these people here this morning? There are way more people than I thought. And why are they all looking this way? Right? So I'm waiting for this person in front of me to move. And the person in front of me turns around and it's the president. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I thought, holy crap, it's the president. And, I <laughs> and thought, I'm in front. Why <laughs> <laughs> well, behind him. And I thought, where is the security? And I thought, oh, yeah, well, you're on a ship and it's closed down. They're all kind of a security. So he's just sort of walking around. And so he, he got up and gave a speech, which was really just sort of a pep morale boosting speech. And there's a picture uh, someplace in the IS of all of us in our United States Public Health Service uniforms in the front row. And... There are about 15 of us, I guess, and everyone is sort of glued to the speech, and I'm on the end with this look on my face like, please get me out of here. <laughs> I, I, there was so much work we had to do, and I did. this was just delaying the work. Yeah. That's really cool. So New Orleans was, yeah, it was good. And I, you know, back to training, I think what made me unique in all of those settings was my methodological training. So the reason I went to Nigeria is because I needed someone to, to do data analysis, clean up their data systems, review their data, to look at their indicators. What kept me, I ended up staying in New Orleans for almost six weeks, which was supposed to be a two-week deployment. The only reason I had to get out because I had to go to Houston for another investigation. Uh, but it was all data because I set up the database for data entry and I ran the statistics in the morning and I wrote the, wrote the SAS code for generating all the reports every day. And so every time it was time for me to go, they'd say, could you just stay a little while longer? So um, That's really cool. it was my yeah. methods training that kept me there. Yeah. So you have a lot of awesome experiences to leverage <laughs> for teaching. And I mean, I feel like you have a lot 
to provide to not only students but others who collaborate with you so that's really great um, how would you say well I don't know how to transition this into you know your research and your focus on suicide but where would you say you've gone from the beginning of your career to, to where you are now has it transformed no I mean your role transforms of course but I pretty much still do the same thing I'm still a primarily a methodologist who works with data, and it's, it's been the central theme throughout my entire career from graduate training all the way to where I am today, where my focus now is is working a lot with a frequent collaborator, Ron Kessler, who you all have had the honor of working with, um, and testing new models for trying to use data to understand risk for suicide and evaluation of interventions and get better at delivering care based on the characteristics of people. So I haven't changed much at all. My focus has changed. Uh, my role on the projects has changed uh, more to mentoring, uh, you know, grad students and postdocs, and uh, working as part of a larger team. I don't do my own programming very much anymore, uh, but it, the the focus has stayed the same. I'd just like to say very quickly about for anybody who's thinking about going to graduate school, I was a terrible quantitative methodologist, so I actually didn't want to do this at all. I went to graduate school thinking I was going to study qualitative methods and gender, and that was going to be my thing. I was going to do theoretical conceptual work. And back to Felicia Claire, she had the wisdom to say, you're a white male, nobody wants to hear about gender from you. <laughs> go, go study something that you can get a job. And I said, <laughs> I said, I don't know what to say there. And she said, go study methods. Everybody needs a methodologist. And I said, I'm terrible at statistics. And she said, get better. And so it was a, it was a tough pull initially. I was not good at it at all. And just sort of kept plugging away at it. When, so, when you say methodologist, for those who may not understand what you mean, what exactly... Anyway. Application of research methods. We get okay. really good at research methods, primarily quantitative methods. Most people don't think about it, but sociology is largely a quantitative discipline, just like epidemiology. So there's their branch is sociometrics and psychometrics and econometrics, right? But is sociometrics, a lot of multi-level models, a lot of longitudinal data analysis that they share with, with psychology. But for me, it was just go get better at, at understanding the application of statistical models to answer questions. Very cool. So what you do now, do you feel as though you're making a difference? Oh, I hope. I don't know. I, uh, I think the more, the more you progress in your career, the more uh, distance between you and the actual application of work, mm -hmm. the more that you oversee work, the, the more difficult it is to feel like your work is actually making a difference. I think the area where I get to make a difference the most now is by showing up and representing the work we're doing or perhaps helping people think about it in a different way and being innovative, but the, the, the area I think where I make the most immediate difference in people's lives is probably just being open to the people that reach out to me that hear about our work and want to, want to so somebody will read about something we've done and they'll reach out to me and want to uh, just kind of share what they've gone through in their life and want to know how supportive they are of the work that we're doing. And that's where I feel like I'm making the most difference when I can actually connect with people. It's, cool. ha it's happened after the recent study we've had funded. I've had several people reach out to me and share their experiences with depression and, and just offer their support for the work we're doing and express how glad that they, uh, they are we're doing it. When I, when I was working with the Department of Veterans Affairs, I wrote a suicide data report. And the, the department invited the Washington Post in to do a story on it, and I had this guy embedded with me for a week. And so there was this big Washington Post story, and once that ha happened, all of this communication started coming and you know I had people sharing their medical history with me and sending their medical records and talking to me about you know the hope that they had that things were going to get better and, and their support for the work so that's where I think you know I, I have the potential I have the greatest impact now yeah when you had just mentioned the most previous project what project are you referring to 
the Bacori project. Bacori project. Yeah. Can, you, can you expand on that? Or are you not allowed to? Of course, I can expand okay. on it. Yeah, please yeah. do. I think it's a very interesting <laughs> thing. So we we just received notice that we were going to be funded by the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute for a five year study of people diagnosed with depression in Kentucky and West Virginia, and we will be testing some new remotely delivered app based treatment models, app or internet based based treatment models, electronic cognitive behavioral therapy, and seeing whether it works. And part of it's only to see whether it works for residents of rural areas. There's very good reason to believe it will, and evidence suggests that eCBT is, is effective. But we're, we're really interested in having a better understanding of who it works for. So for, to us, this is really consistent with concepts of precision medicine. And precision medicine, for a long time, people think about genetics and genotyping mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. trying to understand your body's genetic profile or biochemical profile and how you respond to medications and what medications you need. But you can also do it based just on behavioral indicators and a person's preferences and understanding their stresses and using data from things like the electronic medical record or some outcomes we get directly from the moon to be able to get build profiles of who's likely to respond to what treatment option. So for us, that's a large part of this. Absolutely. It's funny. Over here, we see all, you can't see those who are listening, but everyone over here is nodding their head like, wow, that's great. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, do you guys have any questions? I feel like I'm monopolizing the Yeah, Dan, what do you got for me? Uh, I'm a guest. I've got, I've got three quick questions. They're very, uh, you're this, allowed one. This that conversation has really been thought-provoking for me. Um, first one is, what is, was the common pet name for the prairie dogs that people <laughs> spike. had? Spike. Oddly, it was Spike. Spike. Yeah, yeah it's weird because dog. they're not spiky at all, so you wouldn't expect it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my second question is, how does one go about getting monkeypox? Yeah, one gets bitten. By a prairie dog. But, well, so actually, I'll tell you what the transmission <laughs> chain is. So, do you have to sleep with the monkey like the prairie dogs? That's interesting. No, the monkey, there was an actual monkey contact. Oh, that, okay. that would have made a much more appealing story. No, it, at the time, the exotic <laughs> pet trade was largely unregulated, and it's still largely unregulated. So, it turns out, and I probably know way too much about this, that prairie dogs were being shipped on vessels next to giant Gambian rats. Giant Gambian rats come from an area where monkeypox is prevalent. The rats are transmitters of monkeypox. They were carrying the monkeypox. They bit the prairie dogs in, in route. The prairie dogs were infected. People buy the prairie dogs. People get bitten. And so that's the transmission chain for that particular one. Went from monkeys to rats to prairie dogs to people. It's crazy. Um, and it's really important, by the way, one uh, one of the species that was most vulnerable to this that would have actually been decimated had it not been controlled is the domestic squirrel. So much like the, the Gambian rats, they just tend to be very susceptible for it. See, aren't you sorry you asked? It turns I out I hate knew. squirrels. <laughs> How does monkeypox <laughs> present? Just curious. Uh, like smallpox. It's actually okay. in the smallpox family, which is why everybody was so concerned about it. I bet. So it presents with blisters that pus-filled white blisters on your body. Not a lot of them. Um, and they left some residual scars, unlike smallpox where a person would have a lot of blisters. These mm -hmm. tend to be a uh, smaller number of larger blisters. Interesting. Well, my last question is, um, from from what I'm hearing, you can't seem to hold a job or a position. <laughs> so I, I was wondering, what, what brought you to West Virginia? What, what, what was the one or two things that said, hey, I want to come back here? Yeah. Or yeah, or come here. Uh, so I suppose I've had a bit of occupational instability. Um, <laughs> so, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I've moved around a little bit. So I finished my postdoc, I actually took a job working on the field activity support team for the polio eradication branch, which was probably the coolest, most rewarding job I've ever had. We forget about polio in this country because it hasn't been around for so long, but just an incredibly debilitating disease. And once you get into developing countries where uh, it's still endemic and you see 
you know, kids pushing themselves around on skateboards. And he realized that this is wholly preventable and that mm-hmm. there are people who are paralyzed uh, as, a, as a, a, a consequence of our failure to provide effective immunization. Um, so I, it's something that really I felt personally uh, proud to be able to work on uh, to contribute to these areas that a lot of the world has forgotten about, the, but both the populations and the disease. So I worked for them uh, for about a year. My my wife accused me of just trying to follow Angelina Jolie around. <laughs> she was, you know, she and Brad Pitt lived in New Orleans, and so I go to New Orleans for six weeks, and then there's a uh, polio outbreak in Namibia where they, I think they had their child, and so I jump on a plane. <laughs> and in fairness, when they said we need someone to go to Namibia for, for a while, I think it was there three months the first time, I said, Angelina's there, right? And I raised my hand. Um, but she, she had um, So I, I worked for, for that for a while, but that, that, job was 75 to 85% internationally based. And so I was just never home and I have had three children, still have three children, but they were smaller at the time. And it was just taking a toll on them. The last time I left for a trip, which was to return to Namibia, uh, for two months, two and a half months this time, all three of them were crying the entire way to their point. Mm-hmm. I, said, I just can't do this. So was looking for, and I was staying up at night writing papers in the hotel room. And mm-hmm. so I was continuing to publish in the area of suicide and violence and thought, well, this is silly. I might as well just go to the university and continue to pursue what is clearly a passion for, of mine. And was recruited here to West Virginia University by Dr. Jeff Coben. Shout out, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Um, <laughs> and to come be faculty and assistant professor in the Injury Control Research Center, which was in its first full cycle of funding at that time, and was a professor in the Department of Community Medicine, uh, where, was, where our public health program was. But I was recruited out of here after about 18 months even though I swore that I wasn't going to go work for the federal government full-time again. I uh, love the federal government, love you guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was recruited by the Department of Veterans Affairs and University of Rochester to come up, and they had a Center for the Study and Prevention of Suicide led by Eric Kane and Yates Conwell, two very large names in the field of suicide prevention research, and it was really an honor to get to go work, be a part of that team, and then help stand up a department of a VA-funded Center of Excellence just for suicide prevention where they were trying to do a public health model. So I left here, went there, um, but then left there and went to Washington, D.C. for a while to be director of epidemiology for both suicide prevention and uh, post-deployment health, where we looked at Agent Orange and all all kinds of things. But then had an opportunity to come back here. And so, uh, you know, maybe it's movement, but there seems to be a theme to it. It's all been suicide prevention. It's all been data. It's all been epidemiology ever since that decision to go into the EIS program. Felicia told me it would be the best move in my career, and I think she was right. Yeah. Yeah. She might enjoy hearing of that. Thanks, Felicia. (laughs) That's, that was your question? That's all so we got. got Spike, yeah, we got Gambian and rats, and we got, you know, why can't you keep a job? Those were all fair questions. <laughs> do monkeys wear lipstick? That's the only other thing. I, only if you put it on oh, them. Okay. Yeah, they don't do it on their own. It's, okay, I'm it's done. kind of creepy. <laughs> Shout out to Pera, Ol- Ol- uh, see, Pera Olaf Ostrand from Sweden. He's a father of work physiology. I love Pera Olaf. He's dead now, but... Big shout out to our Swedish family. Yeah. Right? <laughs> to our dead Swedish family. So, Sarah, what do you got? Uh, so I have a question. Go it's ahead. kind of a two-part question. You gotta know, take I, notes. I like you can to take ramble a little bit. Yeah. Um, but given your work in suicide prevention, uh, you know, in the media we've seen a number of celebrities that have uh, committed suicide uh, or passed away from suicide. We like to say die. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the correct terminology? It's okay. Um, we'll forgive you And suicide death rates have been on the rise in the yep. past... They're up again. Yeah, they're up again. What is there something that 
uh, you think we're missing yep. in public health? Obviously, right? Because they keep increasing. But what do you think we're missing? And uh, specifically from the data piece, you know, since you've used a lot of predictive analytics to understand suicide, uh, are there different pieces of the data that we need to bring in or to understand the where there's a gap? Is that yeah. Is there Both really good questions, and I think they're related. So the first is, uh, I was actually thinking about this on the way in this morning because that's what I do when I'm driving sipping coffee is think about the work of, of Ann Case and Serengus Deaton. And the, for all of our listeners in, in Sweden who probably know this already, uh, they were the ones that sort of characterized the loss of life expectancy among some Americans attributable to suicide, overdose, and alcohol-related liver disease. And the fact that those three have been reliably, uh, reliably over, over time, they show the cohort effect is getting worse over time, uh, have been contributing to loss of life, and we, we certainly see it here in West Virginia, it tells me that we're, we're, we're missing the interdependencies, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're, we're siloing suicide and, and not thinking about how it's related to these bigger social processes and, and bigger environmental factors. And all of our models, uh, well, a lot of our models, I won't say all of our models, but a lot of our approaches of both how do we interrupt risk and how do we understand risk and what, what information sources do we need tend to come from clinical systems because it's approached as a consequence of mental health disorders or psychiatric illness, which you know I'll, I'll be the first to admit that there's certainly some, let's say, unhealthy thinking going on at the time of death from suicide, right? Or, or some faulty uh, thought process. That, however, is a distinguished can be distinguished from the best indicators and, and best opportunities for interruption and where you see su suicide prevention going at least with the work we're doing with predictive analytics is trying to move that a little bit upstream stop focusing so much on a specific outcome start trying to understand the path that people take uh, to get there because the work of, of case and deaton and others you know clearly demonstrates that there's this commonality at least equifinality right the, the idea that there's not a specific outcome but a range of outcomes it's possible when you're experiencing adversity and you're on that path towards a, uh, a poor outcome. So I think part of what we're missing in our approach is to be a little more broad in the factors that we consider. What's missing from our data at this point are those indicators that we need to understand what's happening beyond clinical engagement and clinical factors that are clearly significant, but that probably interact with other things going on. One of the guys that was my mentors at, at Rochester, Ken Connor, shout out to Ken Connor, um, we used to say that trying to predict suicide was like trying to predict the weather, that yeah, you know, you can walk out and it's a fairly blue day and, and the skies are clear and everything's good, but then there's a disruption in the upper atmosphere and that disruption fuels another disruption. And then before you know it, there's a cycle going on that people had difficulty predicting. And you see that in difficulty predicting tornadoes, right? Because you know that the conditions might be right, but you don't know when it's coming because it's that unique set of circumstances that leads to the actual formation of a tornado. And he said, you know, predicting these crises is a lot like that. It's not one thing, it's a complex interaction between things and getting all of the factors right for that person at that time means that you have to think very broadly about what you're considering. Oops. Is that good? That's an excellent answer. <laughs> <laughs> I have a quick question. I thought it could help. <laughs> now, I don't know if we're allowed to answer this question. No. Um, but would you say, I w let me back up. Suicide and case fatality, regardless of how you feel about guns, um, case fatality is higher when you use a gun to a lot. attempt suicide and are more successful in doing so. I don't. That's probably stigmatization. Yeah, we don't vernacular. say successful. I don't yeah, know how to it's not a good refer thing. to it. Yeah. But um, would you say that, it, and that would be highly politicized, would you say that politics hinder 
research in this area? Uh, I don't know. I mean, look, it'd be the public health answer to say yes, right? But um, maybe because I'm really old now, I, I don't really see it as hindering as much as trying to understand the context that you're working in. I think politics and policies are, are, are a reflection of attitudes perceived or real mm -hmm. among the larger population. And there are a lot of people in this country that strongly believe in their right to the Second Amendment right to, uh, to have firearms. And, you know, I think that trying to think about intervention strategies or prevention programs uh, that do not consider the, the strength of those, those norms or the, the, the value of the population are unlikely to be successful anyway, right? So mm -hmm. I think, and this is something that actually I, we, we were able to work on when I was at the Department of Veterans Affairs. You can't have the gun-owning, gun advocacy, advocacy community on one side and the public health practitioners on the other side, mm -hmm. or even the le legislators and policymakers. We have to find a way to find common ground. Mm -hmm. And there are common solutions. And what you see coming out of the, uh, that, those interactions today is a focus on safe storage and use, on removing the firearm from the home if someone's experiencing a lot of distress or is thought to be a risk to himself or herself or others. And that is entirely consistent with what most of, well, I'd say all, of the gun uh, education advocacy groups support anyway, mm -hmm. right? So if you if you look at their training materials, they're pretty clear about that. They don't want that. Anyway. You know, firearms shouldn't be possessed by people who are not legally allowed to have them, and they should not be possessed by people for whom they, there might be a risk of, of injury to themselves or others. So it's just finding that common ground and trying to bridge that divide. I think it's I think it's more of a perceived barrier than it is a policy legislative barrier, and I think it's more one of an entrenchment in camps and actually getting work done and. Trying to bridge that divide takes some time and patience, but I, I th certainly think there's been success. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does anyone have any other questions? I'm happy with my prairie dog answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry this wasn't as lighthearted as we normally would have it, but I find your life and experiences interesting, and I think that they needed to have a more serious note. I apologize. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, I would just like to say, although I uh, apologize for correcting your language, but at least in suicide prevention, we, I think it's really important we start to get that language right. Mm -hmm. What right? is the language? So we, we, we talk about dying from suicide. It's not committing suicide. Committing is, is a crime. You commit a crime, right? Mm -hmm. this is, we're trying to really get people to think about it a little bit differently. Um, we, we don't want to stigmatize or put it off in a corner of something that you know uh, is either illegal mm -hmm. or amoral. It's It's... It's a complex process, but certainly it's an indicator of a person in distress. And so we talk about people dying from suicide uh, rather than committing suicide. Um, and I think there was something else you were referring to, just a um, language thing. Success. Success, which is yeah. terribly. I, I, that was not okay. But. It's okay. It's, it's the common vernacular, right? It's the, it's the language words that matters. We, yeah. Well, it does. We start helping to shift the way we think about mm -hmm. it and, and start presenting it in a way that's a little bit different and starting to break down these stereotypes. And, uh, um, because you want a little bit of a serious note, I'll end on this. I think it's a reflection of our failure as a public health and prevention community to try to destigmatize de and have an accepting attitude, not just about suicide prevention, but about mental health. Mm -hmm. I mean, those of you who've spent any time around me have heard my rant about, you know, the brain is the most complex organ in the body, but it's one that we're least willing to get help for. Mm -hmm. And so we're much more willing to go get help for our feet if they hurt than the fact that we've been sad for two weeks. And I think that's that's in large part a fear of, I'm not feeling well. I already feel like that makes me a little bit different. Now I'm going to go to a doctor. They're going to call me crazy. I'm going to get a diagnosis, and everybody's going to think I'm crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's ridiculous, right? So uh, part of the reason that I personally advocate for a, a sort of careful use of terms is to try to normalize the idea that mental health disorders are fairly prevalent, right? Mm -hmm. so, no, they are. Right, yeah. up to 20% of the population at any given time, right? So uh, they're, they're prevalent. They're, they're, people are functioning. I can't stand the when people try to tightly associate uh, 
depression with suicide. There's not a one-to-one thing. You know, the overwhelming majority of people who diagnose with depression will never attempt to die from suicide, even though it's a, it's a pretty robust risk factor. So somehow we have to disentangle all of these stereotypes and negative connotations that we, that we associate with terms related to mental health and mental illness. Yeah, yeah. No, that's important. Yeah. Don't um, think therapy's great. I'm much healthier now. <laughs> You're a heavy advocate. <laughs> Years in therapy to have this wonderful conversation. <laughs> I love me now. We, need, we just need to get Dan into therapy. It's all, all going to work I'm out. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people, people like, like me. People like me. That's right. Even if they don't. Yeah. <laughs> Is that from something? Or did you just yeah, come Saturday up with Night Live. Live. Oh, Stuart Small. You guys are just Smalley. babies. Yeah, you don't. I've yeah. Yeah. Dan and I could go at any minute. That's how old we are. So we, <laughs> oh we like to share these 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 memories of well, things. You know, you talk about polio. I mean, I don't think these guys know it, but I remember being lined up in a, a gymnasium to yeah. for your little little paper cup of sugar water that had the vaccine in it. And I think, man, my gosh, that wasn't that long ago, but that's how it was administered back then. Yeah, the, the oral vaccine. That's what we still yeah. give on sugar, well, in drops. Uh, they don't do sugar cubes anymore in developing countries. Hmm. Yep. Is there, so there's a festival. Is there not a festival each year where they provide this vaccine, or am I thinking of something else? The polio vaccine? Mm-hmm. Not in this country, I don't think. Not this country, I'm talking. Oh. No, there are campaigns internationally in countries, <clears throat> so they'll go out and... I was part of those campaigns, and I know we're running over on time. This is a long one, but in, in Namibia, for example, every time there's an outbreak, well, in, in, when countries were still endemic, there are national campaigns every year where you literally go door to door and take every kid under the age of five and administer the vaccine, and then it, it just drops in their mouth. And then in uh, Namibia, after that outbreak, we made the decision to vaccinate the entire country. Uh, so you, we literally went door to door through the entire country, finding everybody administering the vaccine that we could. Uh, because that outbreak ha- actually happened among a- young adults, and so we, we didn't know where the, the coverage gap was. But, yeah. I'm not aware of festivals. That would be a, a fun way to do it. Maybe you can get, like, Lady Gaga to perform. Everybody get polio vaccine. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I think they do that, but maybe it's for something with a vitamin. I don't remember. Right. I'm willing to do it. I learned yeah. it somewhere. I've taken multiple doses of that polio vaccine and try to show people it's safe. Yeah. Is that bad? I don't know. It's worked out. <laughs> <laughs> It's so one thing I'll say about public health, though, particularly if anybody's thinking about doing international work or any work in public health and getting out in the field, you've got to be able to cast away your concern to, to a reasonable degree for, for yourself for the, for the, to demonstrate the, the safety or importance of what you're trying to do. And one of the, most of the stories I tell about doing work with the polio program are, are stories about you know, for example, being out in the field and being served some oranges and soda that I know are going to make me sick, mm-hmm. right? But do it you know, anyway. You're, you're going to take it, right? Mm-hmm. And if it means you take another dose of polio vaccine so that this this family will vaccinate their young children, you can prevent transmission for that family, then you do it, mm-hmm. right? And they tell me it's safe. I'm okay. <laughs> so far, so good. So far, so good. <laughs> yeah. I'm hanging in there. I don't do it anymore. Yeah. Thought about being a contestant on Naked and Afraid. Are you inviting me to join that show with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure what that, that comment was for, but hey, I'm I think in, he may man. like you. Yeah, I, we're friends. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, uh, all of our listeners. <laughs> we're, I'm getting told. To I know. I'm not going to say what I was going to say. Go uh, ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. Nope. Keep, nope. Keeping that one under yep. wraps. Keep that. We, we want to limit the... Um, editing for Danelle. All right. (laughs) So thank uh, all of our listeners and Sarah and Dan for um, joining us on this, this podcast. 
So just on, on another serious note, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, um, we want to kind of highlight that. So it provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress. You're not alone. Um, if you're, the number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. So thank you. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for tuning in to hear our conversation with Dr. Rob Bossert. If you have any questions or comments, Bossarte. <laughs> you have any questions thank or you. comments? Uh, make sure you share them with us on Twitter or Facebook using hashtag AskWVUICRC. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with our director. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Goodbye from your friends at Oomph. We make energy control. <laughs> energy. Oh, oh energy. <laughs> Injury control and some energy. As he too. slaps cool. on his sunglasses. Yeah. Can you see these on podcast?